Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Tal Zimmerman. Joining us online today from London is Dr. Elizabeth Williams. Elizabeth is a historian of modern British history, Africa, and the African diaspora. She's also an academic librarian and is based at Goldsmith University of London. Her work focuses on race relations as Chinese presence in Africa and the Caribbean, the international politics of Africa, and the engagement with Britain. Elizabeth's recent monograph, The Politics of Race in Britain and South Africa, Black British Solidarity and the Anti-Apartheid Movement, was published this year by I.B. Torres. It uncovers the hidden history of Black British activism in the global anti-apartheid struggle. As we'll hear, the book highlights the connection Black activists made between domestic racism and the struggle in South Africa. The nature of solidarity and political action of Black communities in Britain, writes Elizabeth, was influenced by this role. I especially enjoyed the oral interviews that Elizabeth had conducted with intellectuals, activists, and politicians, which added, I thought, a layer of voices rarely represented in accounts of the anti-apartheid. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Um, Very happy to have you here. Um, As I told you, uh, when we were not recording, I really loved your book, so I'm very happy for the opportunity to talk to you in more detail about it. Um, but before we delve into the argument of the book, um, could you help us set up the historical context? Okay, so um, we know that um, apartheid was uh, introduced in South Africa formally um, when the nationalists came into government. Um, uh, apartheid itself was a policy that was introduced in 1948. Um, in South Africa. And uh, people often look at apartheid as if it was something quite new, but actually it was uh, a legalization, if you would like, of segregation between the races, um, particularly between black and white. Before apartheid um, was introduced as a formal uh, set of policies and laws, um, segregation uh, was in place in South Africa, which was an informal practice, basically, um, of uh, apartheid. It was just that it wasn't given a name before. And up until that point, those who tended to be um, in government uh, were mostly uh, English speakers, um, and they were the English-speaking elite um, in the main provinces um, after the Anglo-World War. So apartheid introduced a formalization of really racism into the laws of the country, and also it brought uh, to the fore the dream and the vision of a particular sector, section of people within the white community, the Africana community, who were a mixture, obviously, of uh, Dutch primarily, uh, French, Rougineaux, um, uh, as well as some other white groups. So what I want to establish is that apartheid, in a way, was a continuation of practice um, 
of uh, racism, but now it was in law, and we had a whole series of laws that set out um, how uh, South Africans should live their life in the public sphere. Um, now, if you want to set it um, in a sort of continental um, sort of um, perspective, then you would say that actually when apartheid was introduced in South Africa in 1948, it was really no different in terms of how things were being practiced in the rest of Africa, uh, in the rest of colonial Africa, because the rest of Africa at that point in 1948 um, was still um, a, a colony and it was demarcated uh, between Britain, of course, uh, France um, and other European countries. So I'm sure that if you were white and living in South Africa at apartheid and you were living under apartheid, um, going to Kenya or Kenya and other regions, you would not have felt out of place because wherever the European happened to be living and settled in Africa, there was a very strict demarcation in terms of uh, races, in terms of the races um, as well. So that's just setting it up very, very quickly in a broad overview. Um, so I was, we're just talking about 1948 to 1994. Right. Just with the, 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, I would say, though, that uh, despite the practice of segregation and despite the practice of apartheid, you always obviously had groups um, that did not agree with this established order. And they came both from the African community uh, in South Africa as well as white South African uh, groups as well who uh, did not agree with this um, sort of ha how these things had been set up. I would say that 1948 is also very key, the 1940s, because we had just come out of the Second World War, where it was quite clear where racism, at least the European context, could take you. Um, and, of course, here I'm referring to the Holocaust. So in, 19, in the mid-1940s, particularly after the Second World War, I would say that globally, even though empires were in place and even though racism was in place on the different types of names, there was an awakening and an awareness that really racism had no place in how people would choose to govern uh, their countries because we could see where it could take you in the case of Nazi Germany and the appalling uh, nature of the Holocaust. So you would find that a lot of people that um, started to raise their voices uh, against apartheid said that we have just fought a war where basically we fought a war um, to liberate uh, Europe and also uh, fought a war against what Hitler was trying to do, which was really annihilation of people because of who they were ethnically. And therefore, you know, we cannot stand for uh, apartheid. So I think you start to see a joining up of thought, um, a, a, a lack of tolerance for a system that would discriminate against the people, and you started to see allies and groups being formed. And allies and groups were formed, you know, throughout Europe, in Britain, and in Africa. Um, and more and more people started to raise their voice. At the same time, you also had Africans that were always consistently traveling from Africa to Britain, because especially when you talk about British Africa, um, you know, Britain was the metropole, the motherland, um, and 
it was the dream of many Africans, and I would add here Caribbeans, people in other parts of the British Empire, to come to Britain. And once they came to Britain as students um, or even to work and to live here, they started to talk. I'm talking about the intellectual elites here to talk about their situations back in their colonies as well as other sort of worldwide uh, events. Um, and if one thing was on the table, it was definitely fighting for the liberation of their countries and also this sense of need to join up, to have a Pan-African um, type of scope. Um, and this is where we start to get the establishment and a build-up um, of support to speak out against forms of racism, whether it was in South Africa, whether it was elsewhere in Africa and the Caribbean, whether it was in Britain. And um, in my book, I talk about actually that this is part of a long tradition of uh, Pan-Africanism that started just before um, the second, um, just before the 20th century. And I talk about the Pan-Africanist conferences that were in uh, 1898, 1900, which most people remember, and 1945, again, another key key date during the war uh, when the major Pan-African uh, conference came to be. And ironically, at that Pan-African conference, there were black South Africans that were invited to come and could not leave the country, uh, and there were others who were able to be there, and um, the situation, the race the race situation uh, in South Africa was actually put on the table and talked about and discussed. So, um, you know, three years later, when apartheid was introduced, at least those in the Black diaspora were very, very aware of what this meant um, um, as well intellectually. So um, when it came, therefore, to Chief Tulu um, calling for Boycott now shifting from the late from the mid to the late forties, early fifties when it became they became aware that apartheid was going nowhere, and therefore not only um, did you have have to have a domestic fight back, but you needed international pressure. And Chief Tulu called for a boycott. There were Africans, Caribbeans, as well as white Britishers who were in Britain ready and waiting for that call because they were very desensitized or sensitized to an Africanist movement. Also, there was a very strong anti-colonial strain amongst the British, white British uh, liberal um, wing of intellectuals and politicians, and they were more than ready um, at that point to listen um, to his call and to respond to this call uh, for a boycott to pressure um, South Africa um, to obviously, you know, uh, disband uh, apartheid. So I think, you know, I, I've tried to, to just give you a sense there um, of the origins of um, the anti-apartheid movement and some of the different um, groups that began to emerge uh, at the beginning, uh, at least of when, um, you know, the call to boycott, um, you know, apartheid uh, okay, so um, we'll talk about these groups, of course, in, in more depth just very soon. But I just, I think I'll just um, put in a kind of a little analysis to the listeners that when we will be talking about the anti-apartheid uh, movement in Britain, we're actually referring to our organization, right? It's not, uh, we're not talking about the struggle at large. We're referring, or we will be referring to a, a certain organization. Yes, I'm referring to the organization that was uh, 
um, founded in 1959 uh, and then eventually disbanded uh, in 1990, basically. Um, it, it goes on until 1994, but really 1990. So that, yeah, that organization, and I'm talking about the British anti-apartheid movement. I will also talk about anti-apartheid activities and anti-apartheid groups um, that do not necessarily fit within the anti-apartheid movement. Can I just abbreviate it to AAM? Exactly. I was going to suggest exactly the same thing. So fantastic. So AAM would be the organization and the rest would be uh, kind of more general activities. And actually that's kind of the set, one of the central tensions of your book, um, I, I think at large. So we'll, we'll get to that very soon. Um, I thought that like the most important accomplishment of the book, at least for me, was that it, it did bring together two histories that scholars usually deal with separately. Um, the history of the British anti-apartheid movement and the history of black activism in Britain. Um, and by doing so, I think you uncover a hidden history of black um, anti-apartheid activity in Britain, which you already started to allude to at the beginning. Did you go into the project knowing that this is what you want to demonstrate? I think I, I went into the project wanting to demonstrate that there was a black British voice within the AAM. I wanted actually to, it was an investigation to find out actually, um, you know, if there was and to establish the facts on the ground. I had an instinct, um, largely because of my own background, largely because of my own awareness of black communities here in Britain and the way in which they are extremely politically engaged. Uh, there seemed to be, you know, a sort of dis disjuncture between that and what I was hearing um, uh, in, in the academy, in the corridors of the academy and also at conferences. And I was just looking for the black faces in the pictures that I saw and I wanted to investigate. Now, the more I started to ask questions and investigate, then I started really to uncover and excavate why there was an invisibility of these faces in some of the, the um, archives that I saw, and actually where else these faces happened to pop up, these voices happened to pop up. So basically, yes, it was really an investigation to see um, you know, where the black presence was, where the black voice was. Uh, another thing also is that for us in Britain in the 1970s and the 1980s, it was a remarkable time in Britain in terms of race relations. There was a lot that was happening in Britain. And I think one thing that really sort of struck me is that for the first time uh, in the late 1980s, four people of African heritage, um, three people of African heritage, sorry, and one of Indian heritage um, for the first time in a significant, a significant number of people were elected to parliament. One of them, you know, made this quote that said, you know, basically, Brent Day, Soweto, tomorrow. And, you know, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what is this link? Why are you referring um, to this link? And I think it was looking at that bridge and that linkage that I was interested in. So your story actually departs from the mainstream narrative already from your opening pages of your book. You begin in 1951 with the death of a West Indian seaman in Cape Town at the hands of two white policemen and with the protests that took place in the Caribbean and in London. And you argue that the West Indian 
activism marked the beginning of uh, an international anti-apartheid movement. Why did you choose this moment as your starting point? Um, I would say it marks the beginning of uh, a, a pan-Africanist black diaspora voice very visibly, uh, you know, on the international stage. Um, and why did I begin at that point? I think that was, it was at that juncture, at that point, that for the first time, Caribbeans, at, you know, as a whole, in a very sort of public framework, were able to get their voices heard and to say, you know, this sort of treatment of us while we are abroad, somewhere in a country like um, South Africa shows you that this type of racism is transnational and we have to do something about it. I mean, we all knew that, but it gave them, I think, quite a legitimate um, channel to bring this um, to the fore. And for me, you know, I didn't even know that there were West Indians in South Africa. And quite an interesting anecdote is that when I first went to South Africa in 2005, um, I stayed with the family in Belleville, um, in Cape Town. Uh, I guess that's known as the coloured part, you know, part of the coloured part of Cape Town. And we went to um, a Dutch-speaking church, myself and my family, and they introduced us. First of all, because of our names, they thought that we were white, we were British, and shocked when we stood up you know, and saw that we were people of colour. And then afterwards, a woman pushed to the front and said, you know, my great-great-grandfather came from Jamaica, you know, and I kind of looked at her because I don't have any <laughs> Jamaican um, that I'm aware of uh, antecedents. But she seemed so excited that here was a Caribbean or, or somebody of Caribbean descent uh, and she wanted to make that connection. And I, and I thought this was pretty strange until I started to talk to other people. And they said, well, actually, you know, there was a part of town in Cape Town where a lot of, um, you know, West Indian sailors um, and professionals came at the beginning of the century and settled here and had families. And then I started to, you know, delve into some of the uh, scholarship of that in Marks and Trapedo's um, edited book. There's a chapter actually about um, West Indians who um, were in South, were in uh, South Africa and came under the banner of Garveyism. Now, Garveyism is a massive, massive movement in the Caribbean, in Britain, wherever the diaspora was. Um, and I was really fascinated that Garveyism uh, also touched South Africa and um, sort of uh, migrated into different types of forms in the uh, Millennium movement there in South Africa, and that got the wheels sort of in my mind turning away. Uh, and then I came across this particular incident and followed it through, and thought it would be a really interesting way uh, point at which to open my book because lots of people, contemporary historians, just don't see the link. They never consider, you know, why Caribbeans should be interested. Uh, in Africa, and I get that all the time, you know, why are you interested in, in Africa? Um, but it is interesting that it's usually white voices that ask that question and not black voices. So starting at that point, I wanted to show in a very visi uh, visible and illustrative way that, you know, we were there. And actually, when this particular murder happened 
in South Africa, it was the beginning of, I would argue, you know, an awareness for Caribbeans and for the world as well. It is a fascinating story. Um, it takes you then to argue that actually um, the AM should be seen as an outgrowth of African political activity in London in the 1950s. Can you tell us more about this? Well, you know, I think that there is a, um, a, tac a tacit appreciation of this. When we look at some of the writers of the origins of the AAM, they do actually uh, talk about this to some degree, but there is a shift. And, you know, so I'm not trying to be disingenuous to say, well, nobody else has said this, because when we look at, for instance, the writings of uh, Christopher Gurney, um, who wrote an excellent book, um, sorry, an excellent article in History Today, an excellent chapter in the Journal of South African Studies, where she talks about the origins of the anti-apartheid movement. And she does talk about the fact that actually the anti-apartheid movement, um, or she mentions it in passing, that the anti-apartheid movement uh, at the very beginning had a significant number of uh, West Indians or Caribbeans. I'm going to use the term interchangeably here. So these Caribbeans, West Indians that were in Britain that were transitionary. They were moving through, they came here to study, then they went back. So she talks about this, but she doesn't really, neither does David Fieldhouse in his in his Stenemal book, The Antipartic Movement, delve that much deeper into the fact. Um, and what I found out was that actually the anti-apartheid movement was founded, um, was supported, was nurtured actually in the heart um, of one of the very, one of the most important um, intellectuals um, of the day, um, Dr. Um, David Pitt, who was a medical doctor, but he was also very, very politically engaged. And he had the premises that different groups came together uh, and they were the ones that responded um, you know, to the boycott. So I'm not saying there weren't any, you know, white faces there at the beginning, because there were, but the bulk of the people happened to be Caribbeans and Africans. But then what happened is that as you progress through the 1950s and more people started to flee um, from South Africa, exiles started to flee from South Africa into Britain, there is a transition, I think a natural transition of the movement um, um, you know, from away from these early Caribbean influences and antecedents. And a lot of these early Caribbeans um, also went back home, or Africans went back home to run their countries, um, to build up their independent countries. So there's a change of, there's a change of hands. And then we kind of know the story there on it. You know, we know the story very well at the end, in the middle, say in the 1970s, 1980s, but we don't really have really focus on the beginnings and how that happened and how that came to be. And I think in my book, I'm trying to argue that actually the fact that, um, you know, the anti-party movement was supported by uh, various black groups in Britain was not unusual because this is part of a long, longer continuity, actually, of engagement with African, with Africa by Africans and Caribbeans here in Britain that, you know, have been here for a very, very long time in Britain. So actually I want to ask you about this middle that you say is uh, a bit more known and about the withdrawal of um, black activists and intellectual from the AAM. What happens in, in, in the 70s and the 80s that suddenly this organization is, is well, in black, you know, off-putting, let's say, for, for activists? 
So, you know, the anti-party movement was formed in 1959, then we hit 1960. And in many ways, it's a reactionary um, pressure group. You know, it's a reactionary pressure group. So whatever happens in South Africa, those people in Britain, the supporters in Britain, react to that. So after it was founded in 1959, the first big red flag was 1960. What happened in South Africa, you know, in 1960? We have to ask ourselves. The Sharpeville Massacre. So the group has to react to that in Britain. Um, and there are other key points, you know, 1976, we know these dates, um, and, you know, in between. Now, it, it becomes very obvious that the group can't remain a small pressure group. They need to put allies and they need to broaden their scope of support and those who run the organization. And you need actually to be in the corridors of power. You need to be vending the air of important people. You need to change the way, the nature, how the organization is run and get important people, you know, onto the executive. And it's very easy, therefore, to look for your allies in the political um, sphere. So, what we see is that not only are there um, important, significant South African uh, exiles that come into Britain and start to take on the leadership roles, but also they start to look to allies in, you know, the natural constituencies. And by that, I would mean the Labour, the Labour movement here, the socialists here, maybe, you know, that dirty word, the communists here. And these sort of um, areas and avenues did not have a lot of black British people, you know, in those organizations. Some of our uh, intellectuals of the day, people like um, CLR James, for instance, who had a remarkably long life, um, died in the 19, uh, in 1980s, I think it was, um, had already become very disillusioned with politics of the left in Britain and had left those organizations. People like Claudia Jones, who was, you know, extremely one of the few, uh, one of the rare black um, women here, um, you know, had died sadly uh, after she had founded the, um, the Notting Hill Carnival, which was very important for bringing races together. So, um, you know, these people had become um, black intellectuals here. David Pitt, I mentioned um, before, Larry Constantine had died by then. Others had gone back to the Caribbean or Africa. But then there are other compelling um, sort of racial problems here on the ground in Britain that, you know, they had to divert their attention to. So these are, you know, the early black um, activists I'm talking about in terms of uh, migration or immigration of Commonwealth citizens. They started to come into Britain um, from the Caribbean and from India, the Indian subcontinent, some parts of Africa. But, you know, they're coming in here to work, to put all their energies into building their families and their homes. You know, they're very tapped in with what's happening back in Caribbean or India. But, you know, maybe at that point, you know, what's happening in South Africa takes a back a back seat, uh, basically. So you've got a shift, a natural shift. And for those South Africans that are coming here, their focus is, is that, you know, they were part of the struggle. They've come to Britain um, temporarily, and they're going to fight hard to make things back home better. So their focus is very much back home. And therefore, the organization, then I would argue, becomes therefore, you know, a one, uh, a one focused um, organization looking at 
how to make things better back in South Africa and not necessarily looking at what's happening on the ground here in terms of race. And this is where you start to see divisions um, in terms of, you know, those who were black and conscious and activists will therefore say, well, the anti-apartheid movement isn't necessarily for us. We have concerns here on the ground. We do care very much about Africa, but actually we see this as part of a broad and a broader continuum of what's happening. And therefore, if the anti-party movement does not want to uh, consider us and our concerns here on the ground, then we'll do go our own way. And I think that's when I start to map out this pantheon of different types of groups, those that are very independent um, and some who, you know, sort of chose to, to, to go their own particular pathway. But then, of course, there is a shift there is a transition in the 1970s as uh, we get a new generation of black Britishers um, sort of growing up, clashing with the police. Um, you've got the growth of media attention um, and everybody's view starts to look towards South Africa. And then there are a lot of parallels that are being drawn where what's happening in South Africa is then brought in argue into race relations here in Britain and people start to say well look how can we support the struggle we uh, sort of broaden our interests and our scope um, or perhaps we can join the anti-apartheid movement um, and we probably haven't got time now I can see the time is going but you know you then have the ANC who gets very close to and is supported very much by the AAM rather than the PAC and the ANC are saying to people you know if you want to support us we really need to join the AAM because they're, you know, they're our voice here in Britain. Um, and that draws some black activists into the AAM, but there are others who are diehards that stay within their own organisations, such as Black Action for the Liberation, you know, um, of South Africa, BALSA, um, or the West Indian Self-Help um, Organisation and others as well. The clue is always in the title. So I'd like to actually ask you about these groups and kind of how you see their contribution um, to the struggle from without uh, uh, the great, the kind of the iconic organization, the AAM. I think it was important for me to say they existed, they were there. It was important for me to say, well, what did they do actually around? I think it was important to acknowledge that even though the anti-apartheid movement was the premier, the mouthpiece of, you know, anti-apartheid activity here in Britain, there were others um, who had a lot to say and a lot to contribute. I think I also wanted to get away from um, a sort of hagiographic portrait of the AAM, you know, too much back, uh, sort of back patting uh, to um, really showed that even in the AAM there were tensions and there was a recognition that the movement itself needed to also bring in a very um, visible, pardon the pun, uh, part of the British constituency because it was odd to have, you know, an all-white executive and mostly white faces, um, you know, on the campaign and not see any black faces. And therefore, you know, to a certain degree, their critics were quite justified to say, why are you fighting, you know, racism abroad and you're not doing anything here? And there were members, you know, people like Mike Terry and others who were actually very sympathetic and involved themselves in anti-racist politics here on the ground who wanted to see, you know, a joining up. 
actually of the groups um, too. Sorry, I forgot your your question. No, I, you actually answered my question, but I'll, I'll kind of push you a bit more to, to say something about the uh, Pan-Africanist Congress and its kind of um, having more of an inspirational role or at least speaking more to groups in Britain rather than the uh, African National Congress that you mentioned before as being a bit kind of less aligning maybe for, for uh, black activists. I mean, the Pan-African... The Pan-Africanist movement, you know, was all about Africa and liberating Africa from, you know, colonists, from the white men. And also the Pan-African Congress was all about giving back humanity um, and uh, sort of a sense of integrity. And, you know, today we would say it's a human rights organization. So um, it was fantastic for um, people of colour who were in London and in Britain to come together and meet others um, who looked like them and who also had a vision for really how they wanted their lives to be and their countries to be run on par with every other country, every other European uh, country as well. So, yes, it brought a lot of uh, inspiration. It brought people together, intellectuals together who could think through the nature of problems also, there was a lot of strength and unity because they could see that actually you don't achieve anything by being separate. You have to come together. You know, um, you had the United Nations would come, you know, uh, much later, but you had the other organization. I'm trying to think of the organization that was uh, came together after Versailles in 1919. But you know, you had these transnational, these global type organizations where it tended to be. Uh, didn't it? You know, European heads, whether it was monarchs or politicians, came together um, and uh, dreamt out, dreamt up how they wanted to carve up the world. Nine times out of ten, you would not see, you know, African or black faces or brown faces there. Whether it was the Congress of Berlin in 1885, whether it was, you know, the Peace Treaty of Versailles, um, you know, in 1919, whether it was setting up of the UN you know, in 1945. And, you know, these big uh, events where people came together, um, you know, you never saw brown faces, you know, on the decision-making table. But the countries of those brown faces were very much part of, you know, international relations being carved up. Africa was being carved up and, you know, other countries. So the Pan-African Congress, um, in a way, you know, brought people together. Um, people of colour together, and I think they cottoned on that this was important. That's how come, you know, obviously you get the organisation African uh, Unity, which predates the African um, the African Union of today, um, you know, and you get all the different groups, you know, the Monrovia group, the Casablanca group, um, you know, and all these other things that are happening in Africa in the, in the 1960s. So, um, yes, does that answer your question? Yes, so let's just uh, talk about a, a kind of a more specific example um, of the boycott movement and the way you link it to black activity um, in London. So the boycott movement and Caribbean. Okay, so, um, so, you know, boycotting, refusing to buy products from a country um, whose wealth basically is built or based on the backs of black labor. I mean, that's what it was all about, quite crudely. I think the um, genius of the anti-apartheid movement, 
as a whole was that it was able to tap into protests, to protest activity in a way that could appeal to every household. So that's something, you know, there's some things we have no control over. We might not be invited, as I tried to allude to before, to the decision-making table because our face does not fit. Whether we're white or black, we might not be invited to that decision-making table. However, there are things that we can do as individuals um, that can, I think, make a strong um, sort of protest or a case for why we're not happy with how the state of affairs are. And one of the most important thing is economics, is money. And if we withhold, therefore, you know, either our labor, um, means of production, that always has an impact, doesn't it, as we know. So to say you don't have to buy something from a particular shop, I think, speaks volumes, doesn't it, in the commercial world that we live in. And um, on the ground, talking to people, I would say to them, you know, were you part of the anti-apartheid group? No, 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 that had nothing to do with me. Okay, were you part of any other movement? Well, you know, I belong to my local black this or black that. Um, what, what did you do, you know, what did you do in terms of protesting against South Africa? Well, it was quite clear that, um, you know, oranges, particular products, food products, you know, came from South Africa. So I told my family, my wife, whoever my partner, not to buy from there. And that's what we did. And, you know, this did have a catch. This did have an impact because when we look at um, uh, black settlement here in the city or throughout the country, um, you know, we see that in their communities, you have Tesco's. These are our major supermarkets here. You have Sainsbury's. You have, you know, these commercial entities who are making money out of the local community. And if you know, your, your, your base, your support base will not buy your products, you're going to start listening, aren't you, to your customers. So there are cases in Brixton, in Queensbury Park, I think I outlined them in my book, where, you know, they change their policies, they change their, 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 their stockists, you know, they did not buy um, from uh, South Africa, they switched because people just wouldn't spend the money in the shop and wouldn't buy those products. So they listen to the customer. The customer is always right. So, you know, that's one, um, I would say, concrete uh, example. Another example is that um, even though uh, black communities lived here and they saw themselves as British, there's always that connection back to home, back to the Caribbean. Um, and they're very much, you know, I've heard this from Indian friends and other friends who would say that particularly, you know, their parents or their grandparents can tell you a lot about what's happening politically back home. Um, and they're very aware of what's going on back home, you know, um, outside of, of Britain. So, you know, black families were, were very well-versed and very aware of, of what was going on. And uh, a big thing amongst black families is support of, of families back home, remittances, sending money back to their countries. Funnily enough, it was Mrs. Thatcher that brought in laws to stop that or to put a cap on remittances. But I came across people who said, look, we not only sent our money back home to support families, but we also sent our money for political causes. One of those causes was what was happening in South Africa. We would send money, we would send clothes, we would connect with groups back in South Africa, and that's how we would help and contribute to the liberation uh, movement. Um, in that way to families. So that's just two 
uh, examples for you. Well, I want to talk a bit about um, methods and archives. And um, admit that I, I learned about your book from the wonderful archivist of the AAM at Oxford University, Lucy McCann. And I was working there this summer, and she rightly thought that I'd be interested in your book. And I'm mentioning this not only because I'm grateful to Lucy for the introduction, but because I think it's an opportunity to highlight a bit the dependency of historians on archivists and librarians. And your day job is also that of a librarian. How do you um, feel that your two sets of skills kind of feed into each other? Well, I mean, I do feel that I'm in a very, very privileged position, basically, because I see how it works um, on both sides of the desks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm very aware in my day job of the amazing range of resources that we have, whether they are printed electronic. Uh, I didn't start out this way, <laughs> sort of fell into librarianship. So, but, um, you know, we have a very inquiring mind. And if you have a very inquiring mind as a historian, I think that's part of the job that's done. And you need to know how to get from A to B. And it's fantastic if you know and understand the methods, you know, the trajectory to get uh, as well. So, um, yeah, for me, it's wonderful. Because, you know, I think it's rather like if you're a nurse and you're a doctor and you're, you need some sort of service, you know, you know how these things work. Um, but as I, because currently in my role, I do train also research students, PhD students, masters and PhD students. I always say to them, you know, in this journey of research, the most, imp the most important people you need are your family, your support, obviously not in, not in this order, but your family, your support your supervisor, and have a very good relationship with your librarian, whether it's your home institution or elsewhere, because often they know their collections like the back of their hands. They know things that you can see on the shelves, but nine times out of ten, they were also aware of things that are not on that card catalog. Not <laughs> Students think if they don't see it on the screen, then it doesn't exist. And, you know, in many cases, including with Lucy, that there's just so much material there, not even catalogued, not even bought out as yet, and they can see and they, they are aware of it and they can say to you, look, you know, there's this stuff, let me direct you there, let me direct you mm -hmm. here, you know. So, yeah, I love Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Three you know. <laughs> cheers for Lucy. Uh, <laughs> okay, since we're talking about archives and li libraries, and um, I wonder how much you know, of your, you know, two-sided expertise influenced your decision to create your own archive because a lot of your work is actually based on oral uh, interviews with people that were major players in your field. Mm. Well, I mean, this is actually a, a very potent and very hot topic uh, amongst librarians right now. I don't know if you've heard of research data management, uh, which is a big, big thing uh, for us that we're discussing. How does one relate material and manage the data in a way um, that is secure, it's long-lasting, um, and this is online as well as offline. Um, and I wish I was aware of research data management when I started this research. So I'm embarrassed to say that, for instance, you know, we've got to think about so many things. We've got to think about formatting and how we preserve our archives. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, audio as well as print material. So um, I've always been I've always been a collector. So my interviews, you know, are 
tapes that were shoved, shoved in a box, you know, in, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, in a drawer in my room. And then you move around, you know, to different houses, etc. You don't always take those tapes with you or you don't transfer it to other um, sort of manageable data that you can keep um, uploading and updating. So in terms of looking at research data management, to me, it's helped me to reevaluate um, the ways in which I conduct research and what I do with my research output, basically the raw material um, as well as, you know, the result of what I've done, how that is preserved. And I think that's something that's very important, um, you know, for academics today um, as well. But in terms of engaging with archives, you know, I did the traditional thing. So obviously, you know, you see what the paper, what papers there are. But then what do you do when you're investigating something that it does not um, follow a linear form, you know? And so when I looked at the anti-parliament movement papers and I was looking for black involvement, I had a bit of help because the anti-parliament movement realized that the black community had to be brought in and the black community actually um, was significantly present for some of the campaigns. So they started a black and ethnic minority committee. And that committee has its own papers, its own archives, its own newspaper that um, talked about what they did actually month, uh, monthly um, in any um, sort of anti-apartheid group. So there were many committees, not only the black and ethnic um, committee, um, committee, but, you know, you had uh, Jews against apartheid, you had teachers against apartheid, you had students against apartheid. So it just shows you the appeal and the way in which, you know, lots of people were brought into this. Now, that's all well and good, but that only told me part of the story in terms of black involvement. I had to look elsewhere. So that's why I started to find out about other groups that existed see what their concerns were and look to see if they had any international concerns and then try to get hold of those papers, talk to important people, significant people, I should say, um, and then try to think out of the box. Everything is not in Oxford. <laughs> no, it's very apparent in the book. It's fantastic. I think it's one of the great achievements. And you also uncover a lot of, of material for, uh, I guess, all of us to <laughs> enjoy later on. So. Thank you for that. Um, was there anything in the research that surprised you or maybe changed the way you, your worldview? Um, I, I guess what was appealing to me was that, you know, I think the depth of humanity amongst all people, that it wasn't always a black and white issue. <laughs> you know, pardon that. I think it was pleasantly surprised that, you know, whether you were black or white or Asian or, you know, whatever you were, you know, that there is a deep concern about humanity of a person. And just because you did not necessarily affiliate yourself to an organization didn't mean, you know, um, you didn't do something about it in some way. I was also quite interested in the, the conflicting views people would have, but yet they were able to overlook those views and work together towards this sort of utopia and a vision for a better world uh, as well. Well, I mean, uh, thank you for ending on an optimistic note. Uh, it's not always easy while working on this topic. Um, and I want to thank you for this fantastic conversation and for your lovely book.